Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 11 or 10 through 12 because I've They go with this section so well, um, and we'll come to these verses next week. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you will use your word to speak truth to our hearts this morning. Help us to hear the principles that are being taught to us through uh, Peter uh, as he preached these words to the church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply these to our, um, to our lives today and all of our relationships with, um, with our wives and husbands and with our church family and with Um, All the people that we engage with on a daily basis, Father, I pray that you would help us to apply these principles to our lives. We thank you for these teachings, and we thank you for being with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this passage uh, is is really kind of a capstone to all the verses that kind of came before this. In fact, if you were to go back to um, verse 9 of chapter 2, Peter tells the church, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So he's saying, you have been chosen by God. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation set apart for God for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And then he walks into a number of types of relationships that we deal with. Now, I I believe there are a lot of relationships that he could have addressed here in his letter, but um, he addressed some very specific ones. And given the context that the church was dealing with a lot of persecution, uh, these new believers and some of these people that have been believers for for a while were living in a Greco-Roman culture that didn't respect and honor God. And now the Christians are being called to live lives that were very contrary to the culture. And as a result, there was conflict that came about as, as a result of their, uh, their obedience to God and their honor of God. And so he addresses some of these relationships where we find difficulty, where we find it to be difficult to be Christians. And um, sometimes we run into conflict with the people that we're in relationship with because they do not want to live the same way that we live, and it can be difficult to navigate these types of relationships. So he addresses a number of them. First of all, he talks about kings and subjects and governors and people that are being led by governors and those types of authority leadership relationships. And then he talks about masters and slaves 
And again, um, you can go back and listen to that passage of script or that that sermon as well. Um, we kind of talked about how this is not necessarily God prescribing these relationships, or this is this is not God saying this is how it should be done, as much as He is saying that you may find yourself in a relationship like this because of the ways of man and because of the things that man has constructed around himself. And the idea of masters and servants was the reality of the culture of that time and still is today in some places uh, in our world. And so he was addressing the believers, saying, if you find yourself in a scenario like this, this is how you ought to act. And then he discusses the relationship between husbands and wives um, after he gives to us this beautiful picture of Christ being an example for us to follow, where he shares how Christ followed the leadership of his father and submitted to the leadership of his father while at the same time sacrificing and serving to meet the greatest need of those whom he was leading as Lord. So Jesus is the greatest example of a follower and a leader, and he is exemplifying how we ought to you know, live in accordance to his, his um, example. All right, so now... Uh, let's go back to verse 8 and 9, because this is kind of a summary of this. And he says it, verse 8, uh, very beginning, he says to sum up. So it's simply to say in all, to these principles are to be applied to all these relationships, which I think is a really good thing, especially after you walk through uh, the verses where he specifically talks to wives, and then he specifically talks to husbands. And sometimes it seems like that can be out of balance. Like he always seems to have more to say for the women and less to say to the men. You know, you, you look in Ephesians and you look in Colossians and you look in some of these passages of Scripture, it can seem that way. But if you look at it as a whole, you find Scriptures that there are things that are specifically can be and should be applied for women, things that should be and specifically applied for men. But there are also some general principles and lots of them that we should all apply in all of our relationships. So in case you didn't get anything out of last sermon, here's another couple of verses that can very clearly be applied to our marriage relationships in the same way that we would also apply those to a master-slave relationship if we found ourselves in something like that or in our relationship with our governors and our leaders and those in our authority structures. So let's take a look at this. All of you, that is all of us in all types of relationships, we are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So there's three imperatives in these two verses that I really wanted to highlight. The first one is to be. He gives us a list of things that we are to be about doing. It's a state of being. And then he tells us what not to do in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. But, and then here's the third imperative, giving a blessing instead. So that is an ongoing action that's to be taking place. We are not to be uh, returning evil for evil, insult for insult, and we are to be giving blessings instead. And then there are some qualities that we're to apply in all of that. So let's take a look at the first imperative. He says, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So that's a state of being. These are qualities that should be practiced in all of our relationships. The first one he mentions is harmonious, and that simply means uh, to be united in mind, 
um, or opinion or to, to be in agreement. And we know that that can be difficult, being in agreement with people. And I think believers and friends, we have the liberty to think differently. It's okay for us to think differently. It's okay for us to have varying opinions. In fact, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about our fellowship is that we, we have the word of God that is our guide and, is, and it never changes. And we are learning God's holy way. But along the way, we are arriving at our understanding of truth sometimes in different, at different times. And so as a fellowship, we bring our understanding of God to the table and we bring our knowledge to the table and we bring our difficulties to the table and we share them with one another and we continually bring each other to the truth. And sometimes in the midst of that process, as we fellowship in the spirit, we disagree. And that can that is okay at times to disagree because the reality is none of us can truly claim to be right, to be 100% right. We're probably right on some things, and we're probably wrong on some things. We know that there is truly only one truth, God's truth, but we sometimes have varying perspectives on the way that can be understood. So it's good for us to work together to come to the truth. But I think what we're being encouraged to do, according to Peter here, is to be harmonious. That's, that's an attitude it's an attitude of unity. It's a desire for an agreement, even though we might disagree. It's a willingness to say we have the liberty to think differently from one another, but yet for the sake of unity and for the sake of love, we're going to do the best that we can to strive for an agreement. If we can, if we can come to an agreement, we're going to strive for an agreement. Now that can be difficult. And I think, um, uh, this, that is especially tested in the relationship between husbands and wives. If you've been married for any length of time, it can be difficult at times to always be in agreement. And sometimes you can go large amounts of times in disagreement over some things and just not talk about them because you know that that brings conflict. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So the next thing he shares with us is to be sympathetic which is a form of understanding. Remember how he told the men in verse 7, he says, you husbands in the same way, living with your wives in an understanding way, which was kind of a, that was a word that means a cognitive knowledge. That's something that happens in your brain. It's an understanding. It requires some research. It requires a little bit of study and how the men were being encouraged here to study their wives and to know their wives and to listen to their wives. I think being sympathetic to all of us, to, to each other and to all the people that we're in relationship with requires a form of understanding. It's the, you can't fully be compassionate towards somebody or share the same feelings with somebody if you don't understand, if you don't know, if you're not paying attention. I think this is kind of a call for us to pay attention to one another so that we can share in the same feelings with one another. That's the literal translation of this word sympathetic. That means to share in the same feelings. So we're looking around at one another, we're engaged in relationship with each other, and we're recognizing how one another feels, and we care. I think sometimes we're, um, we get caught up in how we feel, or we get caught up in what we know to be true, what we know to be right, or what we want, or are trying to just prove ourselves to be right, or make our point, that sometimes we forget that it does matter how others feel. Even though, feelings can be wrong. Feelings can be deceptive. Feelings can be, um, they can be misled um, by the circumstances of life, but it is a valid 
uh, thing that we all wrestle with on a daily basis. We have emotions. God created us to have emotion. Emotion can be easily manipulated, but God gave them to us. They are good things, and they can be um, they can be off, they can be wrong, they can be bad because we have all been born in sin and all good things have to some extent been corrupted. But that doesn't mean we should ignore that. So when we see people having uh, feelings of good or feelings of bad or wrestling with life, it's good for us to recognize that, to see it, and to actually care about it. So he's calling believers to be sympathetic. And then he says that we are to be brotherly. He says to some of all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, and brotherly. And that simply means uh, to, be, to have a brotherly love or to, to share a love for others. Now, it's interesting about this. When I hear the word brotherly, I, I immediately think of the Christian relationships that we have. Because I like to refer to uh, my Christian family as brothers and sisters in Christ. It helps me to remember that we are truly family. We, we have all been adopted into God's family, so we are brothers, we're sisters, and there is a, there's an agape love that we give to one another as a result of being born again into the same family. And that is a beautiful and eternal relationship that we get to share. But I also believe that this brotherliness that we're being called to, this love that we're sharing is not just for believers. This is a, a love that's also being extended to those that are not believers. And the reason I say that is because of the context. Because of the context here, he says we are to be brotherly. And so um, if you're, this is a summing up of everything that he's already shared. And everything that he's been talking about is how Christians ought to act towards these people that we're in relationship with. Some of which may not be believers. And some of which may in fact even be persecuting us. He even tells the ladies in chapter 3 verse 1. He talks, he gives the example of ladies who might by chance be married to a husband who is not a believer, and as she lives and uh, speaks the truth and speaks it in love and lives in godly character, the hope would be that maybe God would speak to his heart through her testimony and lead him to salvation. So there is this concept that we are in relationships with people that may not be believers, and we're being encouraged to act a certain way among them. So even as we are being called to have a brotherly kindness towards our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is a very special love that we share with one another. There is a sense of brotherliness, a general brotherliness that we should also give even to those who are not believers and even to those who may be persecuting us. That is simply to say that we ought to have a sincere love for those people. And I don't think I'm too far off base on that because I believe Jesus has called us to love our enemies. And we'll look at some of those scriptures uh, in a few minutes. And then he tells us to be kind-hearted. That word kind-hearted is a form of compassion. It means to, uh, to help others in difficulties. You're showing pity. You're showing mercy. It means to be tender-hearted. So you're not so callous and bitter because you've been broken so many times in relationships that have gone sour that we choose to not be compassionate towards people. And I think that happens in relationships. We get wounded and we get hurt. I think to some extent, all of us are victims, right? So I think it, since we're all victims, I think to some extent we can kind of, you know, stop playing the victim card all the time as an excuse for harboring bitterness towards human beings and saying, you know what, it's just too hard to be in relationships with people. I heard one man say, 
Uh, it was, this was a friend of mine, actually, in church that I used to attend for a lot of years. Um, and before he became a believer, he used, to say the, he used to say, the only thing worse than one people is two peoples. And he really just had a hard time with people because he had just been hurt so many times. And, uh, and he, he had become callous and become so broken over that. But as a believer, the Lord changed his heart towards people, which was a really sweet thing to see. To see him change and become one of the most kind people, kind-hearted people that I that I've ever known, um, and uh, and it's and that's a testimony of the Spirit of God that created that change in him, you know. And again, I just like to just, you know, side note here for a second. All these are qualities that we're to strive for, but these are also fruits of the Spirit. Like we can't just manufacture all this stuff. It requires a relationship with Christ. We need Jesus, and ultimately, this all of these things are, you know. Peter's pointing back to Jesus the whole time, saying these are the attitudes of Christ. We are, he is the example, and we are to follow his example. And as we know Christ, and as we, um, as we abide with Christ, these things should appear in our relationships. We should find ourselves responding in these ways. So we should have this kind of a, a pity and mercy and a tenderheartedness towards people that that we might otherwise not have if it wasn't for Christ in us. Because it is easy to grow bitter towards human beings. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another. This is Paul speaking to the church. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven us. And there Paul is saying, listen, we're to be kind towards others, tender-hearted towards people, and forgiving people. After all, we have been forgiven. And that's the attitude that Christ is calling us to have towards all people, including our persecutors. And then uh, he tells us to be humble in spirit. He says, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. That means to be low-minded. It's kind of a form of modesty, not making or thinking too much of ourselves. You know, sometimes I think when we have a few wins in life, we start to think pretty big of ourselves. You know, something goes pretty well and you start thinking, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm doing pretty good. Things are going pretty well. Everybody probably needs to do it my way. I might even write a book, self-help book, start a podcast, something like that. You know, start helping everybody with my, you know, um, good ideas. But humility and spirit is the idea that we, um, that we are nothing without Christ. But with Christ, we are, we are valuable to God. But if it wasn't for the Spirit of God, we would all be um, lost in our depravity. But we are redeemed only by God's grace and God's mercy. And so we approach all relationships with a form of humility going into even the conflicts without this attitude that I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to fix you. We're going into these relationships with a humility, with an understanding that there's a good chance I've done some things to offend, and there's, some good chance, there's a good chance there's things I can do better, even as we uh, try to bring reconciliation in difficult times. So one thing to remember is that haughtiness or pride always leads to discord. It always leads to brokenness. Relationships, churches, families, friendships, um, 
teams that work together for employment purposes, whatever it may be. Uh, if you have a boss with employees, those groups that are working together, pride, when it gets in there, it will cause division and will break all of it. And, uh, and I, you know, when I look through this, you know, I think that probably for me, uh, being harmonious is probably one of the easiest ones for me. Not saying that I'm always a harmonious person, but I like, like I, uh, I desire agreement probably to a fault. That's probably the easiest one to me. Like I want everybody to agree and I don't, I don't like conflict. Like I struggle with conflict a whole lot. I get really anxious. I start sweating, you know, and, uh, you know, I might ghost you if I think that you're mad at me, you know, you know, so, um, like I get, I get a little anxious about that, but, but it's because I really want agreement. Um, and so there's a, I, I'm not harmonious in the sense that I, it's to a fault. Um, but then that also probably is because one of the ones that's hardest for me is being humble in spirit because there's a reality that I struggle with pride. I struggle with pride and it's probably my pride that keeps me from, uh, from allowing the conflict at times. And I kind of wanted to talk about that for a second. I did have a question as a result of the idea of um, the marriage relationship and uh, what it means for um, a wife to submit and uh, what it means for the husband to lead. And we've been kind of talking about those dynamics. And the question that came up was, what happens you know, if, if the wife wants to submit in, in a respectful and humble way but yet she strongly disagrees with the decision that's being made by uh, the husband, the leader in that, um, in that relationship. Should she just be quiet? And remember how we discussed what those words, that, that sense of quietness meant, which is actually not quietness in these verses. Um, and how I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because um, Scripture, when Peter uses the word quiet, remember it doesn't mean quiet, it means peaceable. It means a peaceable spirit. Um, he's not advocating for women to be quiet here because women are also supposed to be speaking the truth and speaking it in love for gospel purposes. So what does that mean? And, um, and that's something that uh, we, um, even Leanne and I, have struggled through is this, is what do we do when there is a, a real disagreement, a real disagreement? And I think because of my tendency to be harmonious, my tendency is to just assume all the blame and make peace as quickly as possible. But in reality, the issue is not completely, completely dealt with and then allow it to grow and it becomes something bigger in my heart that has to be dealt with later. And then it's much bigger than it was when it began. Is that making sense? Those of you who are married, you probably experienced maybe something like that. But that, um, but something that, uh, I think is really good for all these relationships, even though we're being encouraged to be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly kinded, or brotherly and kind-hearted and humble in spirit. I believe that this is not saying that conflict is necessarily bad. I think conflict, um, although I think in a perfect world without sin, there would be no conflict. But because of sin we now have to work through the issues where we make mistakes and where we do wrong and where we wrong one another. And if we ignore conflict or if we avoid it, we wind up creating more problems for ourselves. Something that uh, Leanne and I kind of discovered recently, uh, Focus on the Family has a, um, I think I shared this in our small group Wednesday night, Focus on the Family has a, uh, um, a podcast for, it's for marriages. Um, Focus on the Family 
and I think they have a marriage podcast. They have different types of podcasts. They have a marriage podcast. And on that podcast, there was one of those we were listening to. They're usually really short, like 10 minutes, 15 minute little sections. So it's easy for people that are really busy. If you want to go listen to some of those things, they've actually been really helpful. It's usually just super practical advice from people that have, Christians that have been married for a long time. Um, there was one of those that was, uh, that was called um, Embrace the Conflict, or that was uh, not, not Embrace the Conflict, what was it? Anyways, it was one about conflict. Okay, it was like five ways of handling conflict, and they were just practical ways of handling conflict, and it was actually really uh, encouraging to us to listen to that because it just identified several things that we tend to do and what's really good for relationships. For instance, there are those that, that like to run away from conflict, just kind of say, you know what, it was all my fault, let's just make peace and be done with it, right? And that's kind of where, you know, my weaknesses are. Then there are those that just absolutely have to win. At all costs, it's a competition and they're going to win. You know, you're right, I'm right, you're wrong, and we're going to figure, we're going to go after that. Um, and then there's the idea of potentially finding some form of a compromise, which is like, uh, you know, I don't get what I want. You don't get what you want. We're just going to settle for what neither of us wants, and we all just lose, right? So there's kind of uh, that, that form. And then there was kind of this one that they highlighted. It was just the idea of this collaborative approach where, um, where yes, there is leadership and there is submission, but we are unified, and there's a team, and we're working together for the sake of finding agreement, harmony in that decision um, where we're not just settling for what neither of us wants, but we're working hard through the conflict and through the pain in order to actually resolve the issue in a peaceable fashion. And I believe that conflict, if we actually, people, you engage in that kind of a conflict with somebody, it's not going to go well if we don't have the Christ-like qualities of being harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble in spirit and things like this. Uh, these Christ-like qualities are absolutely necessary if we're going to intentionally engage in conflict with the people that we care to be at peace with, right? And I think peace doesn't just happen. So we might be in a relationship with, it might be um, an employee with an employer, but it's not going to just always be a peaceable relationship. Something's going to happen that's going to be difficult or bad, and you're going to have to communicate, and you're going to have to say something that bothered you or offended you, or you may even have to confess that you did something to cause a problem on the work site, and there's going to be a conflict. And if you're not in Christ and bearing these qualities, it's probably not going to go well. And if you just never say anything, it's probably going to wind up at some point with you getting so sick of the environment that you just can't be there anymore and you're just going to have to quit and go somewhere else because the relationships have been completely spoiled. And I think that does happen. It happens very often, even within the church, in church relationships. Sometimes things don't go well. and Sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Sometimes in our disagreements where we have our opinions and we disagree or we hurt one another's feelings in the way we said this or that, and we allow that to turn into bitterness. And rather than just going straight and saying, listen, we need to walk through this together and dealing with the uncomfortable conflict, we just try to pretend like it never happened and make it go away. But instead, it grows into a bitterness that festers and eventually kills the relationship and the church. And I think that unfortunately happens even in God's family. And that's a really sad thing to allow. 
So I would just like to encourage us as brothers and sisters, we look at these qualities to consider that conflict is not necessarily always a bad thing if we can partner that with these qualities that Peter is encouraging us to, to hold on to. Um, now let's take a look at this next phrase. He says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. Now this is basically not giving something. So we're not doing something. We need to not do these things. Um, and that word returning means to pay back or to repay. In other words, revenge, recompense, reckoning, whatever words you want to give to that. You know, uh, I think sometimes we hold on to a really good list of all the things that somebody else has done to offend us or done wrong to us. We're keeping record of wrongs, even if we say we're not keeping record of wrongs. We got this little list going in the back of our head and we're hanging on to just in case one day we need to settle the accounts. They come to us and they say, look, I got a problem with you. There's something you did that really made me mad. Oh, yeah? Well, here, let me pull the list out of the back of my head out of all the things that you did that have really been wrong too. So let's get these right and then you can talk to me about the, you know, the speck that's in my eye, right? And, uh, and that's how I think we approach relationships sometimes. Even if we try not to, in a lot of ways, we do keep records of wrongs. And um, now I think sometimes, again, wrongs need to be dealt with. But we ought not not say anything about them and just keep records of them. We need to deal with them. Um, so then there's this idea of evil for evil and insult for insult. So these are actions and words. So it's the idea of um, kind of a form of a physical abuse and then a form of a verbal abuse. And it is a form of abuse here because he's talking about persecution. So he's, he's referring to people that are genuinely acting evil upon you. They are doing evil things to you and saying evil things to you. And this form of insult is kind of the worst form of verbal um, abuse that, that is kind of being referred to, this word insult. And uh, so in, what's being encouraged here is this attitude of bearing with or suffering long, or what scripture says is long suffering. You're suffering a long time under these difficulties. So it's enduring persecution without turning to sin in response to the persecution. So he's saying we ought to suffer long. We ought to endure. If we have to endure it, if we have to endure it, we ought to endure it without sinning in response. I think that's what's being said here. He's not necessarily saying you have to stay in it. He's not saying if you are enduring persecution, you have to keep being persecuted. If somebody is abusing you, you have to keep being abused. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying in response to being abused, you're not to abuse in return. So in some circumstances, and we've kind of addressed this in the previous weeks, there are times where we are called to endure. There are times when we are called to protest, which is that embracing the conflict, where we have to bring the issue to the table so that it can be dealt with. And hopefully, with that conflict, if you're being abused and you bring that to the attention of the person who's physically or verbally abusing you, then that can be dealt with and repentance would be seen and then that would never happen again. But if that doesn't change, that there are some circumstances where the Lord leads people out where you're not required to stay. So whether you're required, whether you're encouraged by God to endure or protest or leave, in any and all ways that you handle that, you are also not to sin in that process. Even if you leave, if you're called to leave or if you're called to escape that persecution or that abuse, 
there shouldn't be sin that is returned in that process, which is very difficult. I think where all our human nature is to have an immediate temptation to respond with the same thing that we've been given, because that's, that's a knee-jerk reaction for all of us. You punch me in the face, you're going to get at least an equal punch in response, <laughs> at least, most likely two or three to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But that's typically the response. Uh, but God is saying something different. Um, now, uh, again, uh, I just like to add to this. If we're abused, we don't have to be silent. We don't have to just be silent here. And that's not what he's saying. Just because you're, um, you're not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, he's not telling you that you have to be silent. We still can communicate that this is wrong and should never happen, but we must maintain those other qualities. So there must be um, a response of godliness. Now, notice that when he says insult for insult, um, that's a form of a verbal abuse. But then he says, instead, we are to pour upon that circumstance praise and blessing. The response then is the exact opposite. Instead of returning evil for evil and insult for insult, we are to do kind acts in return and we are to speak kind words in return even if we're called to escape that difficult scenario. So let's look at that last phrase in verse 9. It's not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So giving a blessing basically means to speak the will, um, to speak well of or to praise so you're speaking well of this person, even though they're not speaking well of you. It's speech that wishes positive circumstances on somebody else. You're actually saying something that you hope to be good about them, or you're saying things that you know to be good about them. It is to look at the other person, find the good things about them, and speak the good things about them, to speak well of them, which is a very difficult thing to do when somebody is treating you badly. I have a really hard time with that. When somebody's treating me badly, sometimes it's, it's as if like I have to work really hard to remember all the good things because all I can see is the bad thing that that person just did. And it's like a huge blinder that just goes up in front of my eyes. And then the only thing that I can, the only thing that just meets that is, is anger, right? And it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of work sometimes to look back at that individual and remember that they are made in the image of God. They are a soul that God cares about. This is a person that we are to be brotherly towards, to show an agape love towards this kind of person, to be humble in spirit towards this person, and then to begin to look and see who is this person. Can, how are they feeling? Remember, we are supposed to bring into that, that, that uh, sympathetic attitude, sharing in the feelings of what's going on in this person that's causing them to treat me this way. Not that it makes it okay, but that it helps me to understand and then look for the qualities in that person that are good so that you can speak well of them. Now, I think it's a little bit different than just saying, you know, bless, you know, and we live in Georgia. So, uh, you know, the typical response when somebody does something really stupid or when somebody does something really hurtful, you know, if you're going to be churchy about it, it's going to be like, bless, you know, bless them. You know, I hear that so many times to people, you know, but, and that's typically sarcastic. Nobody really actually means that. Nobody's actually hoping that God will pour blessings upon them for their stupidity or for their, um, for their evil nature. You know, it's more of a, I don't know, it's a coping mechanism. Maybe it's a, 
It's Georgia's southern way of just saying it's all going to be okay. I'm just going to we're going to say bless and move on, all right? So, um, and sometimes maybe that has to happen. But I think the blessings that the Lord's calling us to give um, is a genuine and sincere desire for God's good will on that person's life. Like to genuinely desire that that person sees the good will of God. And that can be hard to, that's a compassion. That's kindness. That's love. To desire that even though they've hurt you, they see God's good will. And that, uh, I believe, is a spirit-born fruit that you can't manufacture. I don't think you can manufacture that because we're all just too naturally angry. I think that we just have a lot of that to work through. A um, couple of verses. Uh, Peter gives us 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus' example uh, he says, for you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So even though we reviled him by the way that we lived, even though we um, horribly offended him by our wicked sins. He has not returned that same evil to us, but instead has sacrificed himself to see the greatest goodwill of God be poured out in our life. That's what Christ has done for us, and that's what we're being called to extend as a form of preaching the gospel to those around us. That kind of love. Luke chapter 6, Jesus um, gives us this instruction in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So remember how we were just kind of saying that the uh, blessings for insults, it's an opposites kind of thing. So all these are opposites. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And then he says this, Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Which basically means it's easy to love people who love you. All right? So no big deal. All right? But if you love those who hate you, that's a big deal. And then he says this. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even if sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Notice how he ends that. God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. God is kind to us. And we are ungrateful and evil if not for the grace of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. So he gives us this instruction, be merciful in the same way. Now, that's also difficult because he talks, that's that whole turn the other cheek passage, which is a tough one to swallow sometimes. You know, and I believe that this is 
bringing into, Peter's helping us to understand Jesus's instruction here where he's telling us that there are times where we are called to extend, um, to extend patience with people around us that are extending evil towards us. And then we are to pour on that blessings. But he doesn't necessarily say that we have to keep being abused. So there are times when God leads us out. So look at, as we conclude this section, I'd like to point out this last thing from 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, which means that we are called, he says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So we've been called out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of God. And then in 2 verse 21, he says, you have been called for this purpose, which is to follow the example of Christ in that section. And then in chapter 3 verse 9, he says, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So notice Peter's pattern here. He mentions this purpose that we are being called to, called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, called to follow the example of Christ, and called to inherit the blessings of following the example of Jesus Christ. We are, we are so richly blessed that we should we bless even those who persecute us because we know that we are already eternally blessed. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain is where Peter's going with this passage. So I would just like to encourage you as we kind of walk through these verses, just pray that God will produce these qualities of being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. God will produce those qualities in you. And if you're at all wrestling with any of the relationships in your life or, uh, or, or, the, or struggling with conflict, Pray that God will help to instill these qualities in your heart and in your reactions and actions. And then pray that the Lord will help protect you from the temptation of returning evil for evil and insult for insult, because we know that comes so naturally. And then pray that God will strengthen your heart to pray for those who persecute us. Pray for those who persecute us and speak well of them, even if they don't stop being evil. So um, let's pray together as we pray for each other and, um, and pray for these. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.